Well, happy Easter. Man, you guys dress up well. Look, I actually wore pants today. Uh, Not that I usually don't wear pants. It's usually I wear jeans. Okay, if you're visiting with us today, the pastor who wears no pants, it's quite a show. You should come. Um, Okay, so before I came to this wonderful land of cheesesteaks and Eagles fans, um, I lived in this remote region called Dallas. And in Dallas, I was uh, working at a church and helped uh, lead a 20-something kind of singles ministry there. And on the leadership team, there's a guy named Phil. And Phil was a good friend, good team member. He was part of the leadership team. I love Phil. But Phil was one of those guys you kind of had to keep an eye on or he might go AWOL. You know what I mean? Like the type of guy who he might just like, like you call him up and, and he just doesn't answer his phone anymore. Like it, when you do run into him, it looks like he's just stopped functioning like a normal human being. You know what I mean? Like, stop combing his hair, stop brushing his teeth. Like, you finally see him, you're like, oh, he looks like he's been sitting in his basement watching reruns and eating Doritos all week. Like that kind of guy. And it was one of those times where Phil just dropped off my radar, and I was really concerned. So when he finally showed up at church again, I grabbed him and said, Phil, we got to talk. Like, I got to know what's going on. Let's go grab lunch. So we go out, and we go to this hip little burrito joint. We're sitting there, and I sit down, and I'm ready to eat my wonderful meal. And I look at Phil, and he literally, like, has rings under his eyes. He's sweating. Like, he's a mess. And I'm really concerned at this point. And I I say, Phil, what is going on here, man? Like, I'm really concerned about you. You've just completely dropped off the radar. And he starts saying, well, it's torture. I can't sleep, and I can't eat. And when I'm at work, I just can't even focus anymore. And I'm like, I'm sitting here reeling in my mind thinking, man, this is, this could be serious. Like, how can I walk alongside him in this? Like, does he need medication? Does he need therapy? What, what does he need? And then he says this, and this is a direct quote. When I'm away from her, I can't stop thinking about her. And when I'm near her, it feels like a water buffalo set on my chest. And I look at him and I'm like, you... You're in love. That's awesome and terrible. Like love had just smashed into him. Like he didn't ask for it. He didn't want it. But it had wrecked him. Like this life-changing, soul-shaping love had come into his life and it ruined him. He couldn't eat. He couldn't comb his hair. He couldn't think. Like he was losing control of his bodily functions right in front of me. And it was beautiful. And it was horrible. When I read Philippians 3, I just get the Phil vibe all over the place. Like, like I feel like if we grabbed the Apostle Paul and said, man, let's, let's go get some lunch. I'm concerned about you. And we sat down at the bur- some hip burrito joint and we started talking like, what's going on? What's happening? I think he would say crazy things like, to die is gain and like, I just want him, and I've lost all things for him, and he is my life, and he is my joy, and he is my hope. I want to know him. Like, man, what, what is wrong with you? And then we would realize, like, he's in love. Like, love has smashed into him, and he didn't even necessarily want it, or he wasn't necessarily looking for it, but it has ruined him. Like, he can't function like a normal human being anymore. This Life-changing, soul-shaping relationship. 
has smashed into him. This love has now splattered across the pages of our scriptures in worship and in faith. It's wrecked him and it's beautiful and it's horrible. So, so when we sit here today, I'm pretty sure that most of you can relate to Phil. I can. Like at some point in your life, you've either, you've either had it or you've, you've seen it up close. You've seen someone completely wrecked by love. But can you relate to the Apostle Paul? Has, has the love of God ever wrecked your life? I don't, I don't know why you're at church here right now. Um, maybe your mom forced you. Maybe you're like your neighbor said, come on, let's go to brunch. And he's like, quick, I got to make a quick stop. And you're like, totally straight up tricked you. And you're like, what am I doing here? I don't know. But this is Easter morning. This is the morning where we celebrate that an ancient Jewish peasant who claimed to be the king of the universe and God, not only died, but didn't stay dead. We're either completely delusional for believing this, or the rest of the world is completely delusional for ignoring this. I'll leave it up to you. But here's the thing. If you're here today, and if this is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, God, and if his death on the cross did what he promised it would do, pay for our sins, and if he is alive, resurrected, just like he said he would be, then there's one thing we absolutely cannot be, and that is indifferent. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God today, so here's my deal. I'm going to make a little pact with you, all right? I give you permission to disagree with me. Hey, wasn't that easy? I give you permission to passionately disagree with me. In fact, when you go home over dinner, you can sit and make fun of that short little preacher. I know most of you will anyways. And that's okay. But I'm going to ask something from you. I'm going to ask the while you're sitting here that you would, um, you would do me a favor. I want you to ask a question, and I want you to be honest. Not with me, maybe not even with the people who came with you, but I want you to be honest with yourself and with God. Okay, you ready for this? Can you do this? I know, being honest in church, that's really tough, but can you do this? Here's the question. Do you want to know Jesus the way the apostle knows Jesus? Like, if you could flip a switch and let down your guard and just be wrecked by the love of God, would you do it? Our text for today is Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, last week we started in chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, we're going to carry it on from 7 through 11 today, but last week we, we looked at verses 1 through 6 and it started out like this, Paul seems like he's losing his mind, he's so angry about this group of people he calls the Judaizers, he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. In Greek, each of these words starts with a K, and it sounds like it literally sounds like he's spitting on them every time he speaks. Like Paul despises these men. Like they, they look clean cut and they look church going and Bible believing. And they, they follow every single rule they can find in the Bible. All of that's true. But the apostle is convinced that these men and women... Are, are much worse than you can imagine. They're worse than the, the Roman soldiers who want to come 
chop his head off. They want to do something worse than kill the Apostle Paul. You know what they want to do? They want to redefine Christianity. They are telling the Philippians, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want God to really love and accept you, then you need to follow all the rules we follow. The message of the Judaizers is this. God will love you if you follow our rules. God will love you when you stop sinning. And the Apostle Paul hears this, and he's ready to flip and lose his mind. Because this is not the gospel, and this is not Christianity. They have defined Christianity by religious activities. They've defined Christianity as this. You have to accept Jesus. Of course you do, but then you have to be circumcised. You have to accept Jesus, but then you have to follow all the purity laws. You have to accept Jesus, but then you have to go to church. You have to accept Jesus, but you, they've turned Christianity into a list of do's and don'ts. And last week we talked about this, right? Like, this junk still goes on today. It's unbelievable. Like, there are religious systems all over the place that say, God will love you if you go to confession, and if you do your penance, and if you say your prayers. God will love you if you drive in a buggy and don't use electricity. Like, who makes these things up? Like, we do the same thing, though, right? We have this personal moral standards that we try and define Christianity by. Like, God will love me if. Like, I'm a real Christian if I read my Bible every day, if I join a small group, if my wife only wears denim. If I name my kids like Hezekiah and we homeschool them. Like, what is this? Who made this up? Like, God will love me when I stop drinking, smoking, cussing, or watching rated R movies, unless they're about Jesus. Right? And, and it, last week we talked about the, this is turning Christianity, a life-giving, life-forming relationship with the God of the universe into a list of do's and don'ts. And the apostle says, this is not Christianity. This is not true. This is not the gospel. Christianity cannot be defined by a list of do's and don'ts, which begs the question for today. Okay, Paul, tell us, how would you define Christianity? If it's not about what you do or don't do, what's it about? And in these next five verses, starting in verse 7, so chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through 11, the Apostle Paul is going to give us not a technical definition of Christianity. He's going to give us something a lot more personal, a lot more intimate. He's going to describe how, how the gospel, the Easter story, the reality of the Easter story, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has utterly and completely reshaped his life. Starts here, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. That Christianity, true Christianity, inverts his values. So he puts it this way. The things I once celebrated, I now mourn. The, the things I once bragged about, I'm now ashamed of. The, all the things that the world treasures, the money, the fame, the success, the achievements, the schools, the sports teams, the big jobs, the exotic trips, the entertainment, the stuff we so value. Loss. And we could say, Paul, don't you think you're overstating this just a little bit? But he hasn't even begun to overstate things. Watch this. Verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I want you to pay attention to this phrase. I consider everything a loss. 
everything? Paul, you don't really mean you consider everything a loss. I mean, you can't, because you know, everything includes, well, everything. Like everything includes like my job and the, the bathroom that we just remodeled. It's kind of nice. And, and, and my car and my family. Uh, everything includes moments like this. <laughs> Ever had that moment? Like, that's a loss. Everything includes moments like this with my family. Everything includes moments like this. This is the morning where my seven-year-old daughter, Jillian, climbed on my lap and asked me, will you tell me stories about Jesus? Paul, everything's a loss? Like, how, Paul, how in the world could you possibly mean that? So, so you dig into this. You open this up and you go to the Greek, right? We love to go to the Greek here. This was originally written in Greek, so you, re, you study this and you find out that the word everything in Greek means everything. And it's going to get worse that he doesn't just consider everything a loss. He's going to add to this. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider them rubbish. Rubbish. Now this is a word worth meditating on. It's scubalon in Greek. So when you go to southern Italy, which all of you just have to do at some point, you, you go down, and of course you've got to go to Naples, right? So there's Naples there, but you don't stay in Naples. Naples is crowded and trashy and run by the mafia. So no, you don't stay in Naples. You go to Naples, and then you take that little train that goes around the, the Bay of Naples there, the Circumvesuvius, and you go past the Mount Vesuvius, and then you go down to Sorrento. Now, Sorrento is a place where you just, it is slow and lazy, and everything southern Italy should be. All right, so you stay in Sorrento. But then during the day, you get up and you want to take day trips down to the Amalfi Coast or, my personal favorite, you go up to Pompeii. You guys know what Pompeii is, right? In in 79 AD, it's this this massive Roman city that is right under the shadow of Mount Vesuvius, the volcano. And in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupts and it instantly, permanently covered everything. Instantly, froze everything in time in a layer of liquid hot magma. I mean, even you go there today and they've, uh, they've excavated about a third of it. And, um, and you can see all the towns and all the, all the things that they had. You can even see the people frozen. It's horrible and fascinating at the same time. But while you're there, you will see this. This is, this is the main street here. And all the streets are built really fantastic. They're built by the Romans to last thousands of years as opposed to Pothouse Road, which is just falling apart every year. And so, <laughs> so thousands of years, these Romans built this, and, and it's genius. They have these deep gutters on the sides, and the guide actually takes the time to explain in some detail the engineering that went into this. These gutters was a whole gutter system where everything was, was designed to drain naturally into the ocean. So, so what happened is you got up in the morning, mom would come home with a bowl of water from the bath, and everyone in the family would wash up, wash their face, do all that. And then you had this big bowl of nasty water. So what do you do with it? Well, you take it outside and you chuck it in the gutter. And then a little bit while later, you, you go on and you have breakfast and you have lunch. And then after breakfast and lunch, you'd always have some little leftovers, right? Like little scraps that no one would eat. The dog wouldn't eat sinews and bones and nasty things, rotten fruit and vegetables. So what do you do? You take it, you throw it, and you throw it in the gutter. A little while later, well, I've had too much to eat. I've got to go to the bathroom. What do you do with it? You guessed it. You throw it in the gutter. Now, I don't mean to be too gross here, but just imagine living there at that time, these gutters. If it hasn't rained in a while, 
just the stench, the smell. You have to like step over that to get into the street. And there in that gutter would be all kinds of garbage and filth and rubbish. And the word is scubalon. The Apostle Paul, when he compares everything in his life compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord, he says, it's rubbish. It's that. It's disgusting. It's awful. It's terrible. It's filth. It'll turn your stomach. This is one of those passages that you either have to straight up ignore or you really got to wrestle with. It's like that passage where Jesus says, you know, anyone who wants to become my disciple has to hate their mom. Like, hate your mom, okay? Like, am I supposed to go out and hate my mom now? Like, this is one of those passages, and I tell you what, I've wrestled with this passage. Like, what in the world is that supposed to mean that I consider everything rubbish? That. I've wrestled with this, and I don't think the Apostle Paul means to be, means that everything in our lives are revolting. I mean, if you read the rest of Scripture, it's clear that my house is not worthless. My job is valuable. That my family is worth something. That my daughter Jillian is not rubbish. She is good. She is creative. She is made in the image of God. She is valuable. She is kind. But she's a horrible God. She can't fix herself breakfast. Do you think I should put my faith in her? She can't ride a bicycle without training wheels. Should I find my ultimate security in her? She can't, she can't ride in a car without a booster seat. Should I find my security, my hope, my joy in her? You see, Jillian, my daughter, is an excellent daughter. But she's a horrible God. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul's saying here, that to replace Jesus, my source of hope and joy and security, with Jillian is idolatry. It's unfair to Jillian, and it's offensive to God. But it's not just offensive to God. He's saying it's an offensive to the Apostle. I, I want you to see that the scholars are quick to point out here that this is the only place in all the Scriptures that the Apostle will use this language, my Lord, of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's mine. He's mine. This is intensely personal. That Paul is personally offended by this. And I think I get it. I don't think he's undermining all the good things in life. I think this is a comparison. When you compare all the things in life and Jesus, well, here's what I think he's saying. Um, do you guys know, you guys know this guy? Bill Gates, billionaire nerd. Okay, imagine Bill Gates comes to me. Seems like a realistic story. And he says, Paul, I just like you, and I'm going to give you a billion dollars. Now, would that be a good thing? Yes. <laughs> that would be a good thing. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. I will take your billion dollars, and we will do some great things. This is going to be fun, all right? That is a good thing. But now, let's just change that scenario just a little bit. Let's imagine that Bill comes to me and says, you know, Paul, I've been watching you. I'm watching your family. And I see your little girl, and I've always wanted one just like that. I would like to buy her from you, and I will give you a billion dollars. Tell me, dads. How would you respond? Tell you, I am not a big man, and I am not a violent man. But I was captain of my wrestling team. And I'm pretty sure I could hurt that man. 
If he came to me and offered me any amount of money for my daughter, I would tell him that his money is worthless. That it's not only worthless, but his offer is offensive. Then I'd hurt him. If I am deeply offended by the mere idea of someone trying to trade my daughter for money, how much more offensive is it to trade a relationship with the God of the universe? For stuff, for a job, for achievements, for a house, for a title, for a church, for anything. The Apostle Paul is saying the mere idea of giving up anything, anything that would replace Jesus, it's not only wrong, it's offensive. Nothing can replace Jesus. In fact, he would say, I consider them rubbish. I would give up everything that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having a righteousness that I could earn, not doing a to-do list and pretending like I can achieve this, but a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to pick out one phrase in here. He says this, to be found in him. This is one of those, those phrases that is so profound that we might just lose the simplicity of it. So for illustration purposes, I borrowed some things from my daughter. This is Belle. And I think she's wearing her Easter dress today. And this is Ken. He wore a tuxedo, but it's sleeveless and backless. And that's just entirely inappropriate. <laughs> but God loves him anyway. So we will just pretend like he's... Good. So, this is Belle, and this is Ken. And this is a vase. This is Belle and Ken in a vase. Huh? Belle and Ken? Belle and Ken in a vase. Any questions here? What does it mean that, that they are in the vase? It means that, that they are surrounded, kept within the vase. It means that if you want to see them, you have to see them through the vase. It means that you can't even look at Ken's perfect hair or sculpt abs unless you look at it through the vase. Right? What does it mean to be found in Jesus? It means that you are surrounded, kept with and in him. It means that when God looks at you, he sees you in Christ. That he doesn't see your sin, he sees Christ's righteousness. That he doesn't see your brokenness, he sees that Christ was broken for you. He does not look at you in anger. His anger was poured out on the cross. To be found in Christ means that when he looks at you, he says the same thing that he would say of Jesus. This is my son. This is my daughter. In him, in her, I am well pleased. To be found in Christ means that he sees you in Christ. The man, the woman, the mom, the dad, the daughter, the employee that you were intended to be. Not that your personality is gone, but that you with all your foibles and all your intricacies and the way that God specifically designed your personality, that God sees you completed. He sees you whole. He sees you the way that he wants you to be, the way that you could be. To be found in Christ means that God the Father loves you with the same love he loves Jesus. So, you know, the, the night before Jesus was betrayed and then crucified, you got that story in John, and, and he goes up and he prays. And he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for us. He says this, My prayer is not for them alone, 
I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. That's anyone today who believes in Jesus Christ. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. That God the Father loves you as he loves Jesus. It's the same love that when you are in Christ, you cannot be loved any more than you are. It's a love that knows everything you've done and chooses to love you anyways. It's a love that drove the Father to send His Son. It's a love that sent Jesus to voluntarily give His life for you on the cross. It's a love that is without end and without condition. It is a love that death itself cannot defeat. And to be found in Christ, to be found in Christ means that the Easter story is not just about Jesus anymore. It's about you. Watch this, verse 10. I want to know Christ. Like, what are you talking about, Paul? Like, you know Christ. You met him, like physically met him. You've written most of the Bible. You've had direct revelation from God. What do you mean I want to know him? He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Like, the same power that, 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 that rose Jesus from the dead. I want to know that. The power that can turn a prostitute into a disciple. The power that can turn a murderer into the Apostle Paul. The power that can break addiction and loneliness and disease and sickness and death itself. The power that can heal my broken life and my broken family. The Apostle Paul says, I want to know that. That's what I want to know. I want to know that power. I want that power not only in me, but I want it in my family. And I want it in my community. And I want it in my world. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That the way to Easter is the cross. That I want to pick up my cross and I want to follow him. And I want to die to my interest and my pride and my goals and my dreams and my agenda and myself. So that I can love others the way Jesus loved me. I want to know him and so somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Like I want to know a world where wrongs are actually made right. I want to know a world where little kids aren't going to starve to death. I want to know a world where there's not the problems of cancer and racism and hatred. I want to know a world where God himself is going to wipe away every tear. Man, I want to know that. I want to know him. See, having met Jesus, he wants more. Having been changed by Jesus, he's not satisfied until the whole world's changed. Having believed the Easter story, he will not stop until he's personally experienced this life-changing, soul-shaping reality in his own life. So that question I asked at the beginning of the sermon, um, if you could know God that way, would you want to? Like, do you want to count everything lost 
if you could gain Christ? Do you want the death and resurrection of Jesus to actually shape your life to wreck you? Are you ready to give up all your striving and all your achievements and all your good stuff if you could get Christ? We've heard the Apostle's story. I want you to hear Caitlin's story as we close here. I grew up in a Catholic household. Uh, we were actually sort of the Easter and Christmas Catholics, which means that we went to Mass on Easter and Christmas, and any time in between was sort of like a bonus. Um, I was raised to believe that it was good works that pleased God and hopefully uh, got you into heaven in the end. And as a child, I sort of pictured that being sort of like you had a scorecard and God kept track of all the good things you did and all the bad things you did. And um, sort of at the end, you hoped that the good outweighed the bad. My household, I was born to my mother and my father. Uh, when I reached school age, there was a lot of fighting in my household and a lot of arguing. Um, and it certainly took a toll on my brothers and I as children. And probably when I reached the age of eight, seven, eight years old, uh, it started to certainly affect me to the point where I was desperate and I was looking for help. And I decided to sit down and write a letter to God. And I wrote that if he could please stop the fighting, I promised I would be really good. Um, and that kind of was just the point that I believed that good works got you good things. And um, when you sinned or did bad things, you were punished. And so shortly after I wrote the letter, my parents sat us down and said that they were getting a divorce. And as the little eight-year-old that I was, I, in my head, I didn't know if I should be relieved because God thought I was good enough to answer my prayer or if if I was bad and I was being punished somehow. Through my adolescence, the fighting and the arguing uh, between my parents and the dysfunction in my family continued. And so my brothers and I certainly struggled in many areas with that. And I also struggled with never feeling like we could, like I was ever good enough, um, that I was trying to follow the list of do's and don'ts that we were raised to believe in. Um, but things just weren't working out the right way. When or I, I thought maybe we weren't going to church enough, or maybe we weren't saying the right prayers, or maybe I wasn't going to confession enough. Um, and when I went off to college, I decided that I was going to take responsibility for my own religious beliefs. Um, I found another Catholic church. I went to Mass pretty consistently. I knew the priest. I went to confession. I did communion the way I was supposed to do communion. Um, I memorized prayers the way I was supposed to memorize them. And I remember one day sitting in church. I usually went by myself. And I was sitting there crying. And I didn't really even know why I was crying. I ended up leaving. And I sat in the car. And I, I just started talking to God. And I said, I, I don't understand why I still feel so empty and so detached. Around this time, I started dating someone who came from a very strong Christian family. Um, and they, you know, they welcomed me with open arms. They invited me to their dinners. They invited me to different experiences. They really kind of showed me what it was like to have a personal relationship with the Lord versus trying to follow this list of things that you should do. 
Um, and then one day in church, I had gone to church with them, and one day in church, I God spoke and I kind of answered. And for some reason, that particular day, I accepted Christ as my Savior. And it it sounds cliche, but it was kind of like a big wave kind of washed over me. And that emptiness and that loneliness and that frustration, that hole was filled. It was it was overflowing with love and joy and everything didn't necessarily make sense but it kind of made sense and even now as a christian a few years later i i know that god still has certain expectations of us and i accept that um but i know now that those expectations are are not there so that he loves us but they're there more because he loves us In the ancient Greek epics, there are man-eating bird women called sirens, and they eat sailors. In order to attract their prey, what they do is they, they sit along the shores near the rocks, and they sing out these beautiful songs, and then as the sailors come by, they're attracted, into they're smashed onto the rocks, and then they devour them. In epic literature, there are two heroes who actually made it past the sirens, too, um, the first, of course, you may have heard of him, is, is Odysseus in the Odyssey. And he was warned about the sirens. So what he does is he takes all of his men and on their boat, as they're coming along towards the sirens, and he takes them and he takes beeswax and he plugs all of their ears with it. But he himself, he actually wanted to hear the siren song. So what he did is he told all the men, what I'm going to do is I want you to tie me to the mast. And no matter what I say, no matter what I do when we go near the sirens, I need you to not obey me. I just want to hear this. So they tie him to the mast, and all the men have their ears plugged. And as they go by, he hears the siren song. And all the men, they don't hear it because their ears are plugged, and you can't be tempted by what you do not hear. And he starts pushing and screaming and kicking and fighting against these ropes like he desperately wants to be free. He desperately wants to go to the sirens, but he can't. He's saved. Odysseus was safe because he wasn't able to break the ropes that held him down. But there's another hero, Jason, Jason of the Argonauts, Jason of the Argonauts, and he too was warned about the sirens, but Jason had a different plan. He had brought with him this, this musician, the greatest musician in all of ancient Greece, and his name was Orpheus. And when they approached the, the island, what, what Jason did is he gathered all of his men at the feet of Orpheus, and he had Orpheus play a song. Orpheus drew out his lyre and played more beautiful music than the sirens could ever sing. The siren song called out for the sailors, but none were lost because they heard the more beautiful music of Orpheus. Many people find their safety in themselves, in their morals, in a religion that will plug their ears and bind them, tie them down. And if you came looking for that today, you came to the wrong church. We don't offer ropes and we don't hand out ears wax, or bee wax at the door. But we do know how to find safety 
we find safety by counting everything lost. That is repenting, not only of your sins, but of all the good things you've done. Repenting of thinking you can save yourself that you might gain Christ. And this by faith alone, that we trust him, that we accept his death on our behalf, that we acknowledge that he is our king and our God, that by faith, by trusting him, that what he has achieved in life and death and his resurrection can be applied for you, that you can be found in him. In Christ, we are safe, not because we can't sin, but because he's bigger than our sins. In Christ, we're safe, not because we all follow these rules, but because he gave his life for us. In Christ, we're safe, not because we aren't tempted by everything we are, but when we come to him, when we lay our lives down at his feet, we find in him something more beautiful than the world could ever offer. If you've seen it, if you see that Jesus is better than your life, he's better than your stuff, if you see that following Jesus is better than living on your own, if you see that he is more beautiful today. You can know him the way the Apostle Paul did. You can know that his death and his resurrection, that power is available to you. You can place your faith in him and be found in him. I'm going to pray and I just leave this time for you and Jesus and then the worship team is going to take us right into a song. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, I just encourage you. It's not for us. It's between you and God. But you can pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am not good. I've broken your laws and I, I've lived my own way. I thank you for living a perfect life and dying on the cross for my sins. Today I turn from my sins and from trying to save myself from my own righteousness. And I trust you for, for my forgiveness, for my security, for my joy, for my hope, for my eternity.